And this time we're going to be turning to God's Word. We're going to hear it as it is uh, read, from, read from the Scriptures and expounded upon uh, in the sermon. And so uh, let's take a moment, though, to, to pray for God's blessing upon His Word in this time. Lord God, the Father, we come to you right now uh, needing to hear and needing to listen. And needing to listen to the words of your Son, Jesus. His words are life to us. And we ask then that as we are, are here, that, that as we listen, that you would impart to us a, a, a deeper faith in Jesus than we had before. That he would be more beautiful to us, that we would see him more clearly, that he would be more believable to us than when we first came in to worship this morning. And God, that can only come through your spirit, through your spirit who you promised to be with us, going forth with your word, doing uh, the work that is intended for us. And so we ask then, we beg that he would be going forth here, uh, going forth with the word, helping us to listen and to process of uh, being convicted, again, seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ again. We pray for your spirit being upon the man preaching here. Uh, uphold him as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. We pray it for his sake and for his glory. Amen. This morning we're in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at chapter, or verses 46 to 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. This is God's word. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a great, and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy, or son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Okay, so if you're, you're, you're newer with us here, if, uh, if, if you've just kind of forgotten where we are in Mark and what's been happening, let's take a moment. Where are we in the book of Mark? What has been happening over the last few weeks here? We have Jesus continuing along his journey to Jerusalem, his final journey, his final trek, where he says three times then that we've, we've seen over the last few weeks that he is about to be betrayed, that he's about to be handed over to the authorities, and he will suffer, and he will die, but then he will rise again. And we've seen these, these three times that he said that kind of interspersed with these encounters. We have a counter, one of them was with a rich man. A rich man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how can I enter the kingdom? And he says, give up all that you have, take all your possessions, sell them, give the money to the poor, and follow me. And that rich man leaves sad. In fact, Jesus says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, for, for someone whose heart is gripped by possessions, someone who is holding on to their perceived success, it 
that's not going to work. And then we had uh, a couple weeks ago, then James and John, two of the, the closest disciples uh, of, of, of Jesus, and they are seeking status and glory. Jesus, hey, we have a, can you, we have a favor to ask you. When, we, when, when you go into your kingdom and glory, can we be on either side of you? They're seeking and reaching out for power and glory and authority, and Jesus reorients their thinking. He says, I'm not going to do that for you. Are you sure that you can follow after me here? And he says that greatness is, is redefined as serving others, as being a servant as being a slave of serving others, not yourself. And now we have an encounter with a blind man, and we learn that his name is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, in this whole event here, is an antithesis of these last prior two encounters that we've seen. For one thing, he is, Bartimaeus is presented in a positive light. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is an example of discipleship, of following after Jesus. You have not a rich man, but you have a poor, blind beggar. And he's crying, helpless on the side of the road, penniless, no status, no possessions, and being blind, he has no means to overcome his own difficulties there. This is the least of these. He is someone who is overlooked, even by the crowds that are coming along with Jesus. And he is even disregarded then in his cries for help and mercy. This is someone entirely opposite than what we've seen before. Than the, the request of James and John, they're from the request of the rich man. And yet, though, in all of this, in all of his lowliness, in his, in his uh, despair, in his disability, Jesus takes note And he goes to the side, he shows mercy to this helpless man, and Bartimaeus then follows. That's what discipleship is. It's following after Jesus after having received his mercy. That's true discipleship. And I want us then this morning to be able to see Jesus just like Bartimaeus did. Just like blind Bartimaeus saw Jesus, I want us to see him in the same way. That his sight wasn't simply something what was given to him physically. But he saw Jesus by faith. Even when he was on the side of the road and crying out, he saw him with eyes of faith, with the eyes of his heart having been enlightened. That's what it means to see Jesus in faith, though we may not see him with our eyes right now in this time or at this moment. I wanted us to see Jesus like Bartimaeus did. And what did Bartimaeus see? First, he saw Jesus' willingness. He saw just how willing Jesus was to show mercy to him. Now, Jesus is on the path to Jerusalem. He's going, he's on his way to be crucified, to be betrayed, to be killed, but to rise again. And he's been approaching it with a singular focus. In fact, the uh, the last time we were here in Mark, we saw that even Jesus was going so, so resolutely that some people were in awe and some people were a little afraid because of his intensity about it. And he's now, so he's approaching Jerusalem. He's getting closer and closer by the day with the singular focus because this is the crux of his mission. This is what he came to do. He came to suffer and die for his people to redeem them and to rescue them from darkness and from sin and from despair and from everything that's wrong and sad in this world. And now he is only one day away. He's a one day's journey away to the east. He's in Jericho. 
and the intensity of his mission now, knowing what he would endure in a week's time is increasingly bearing upon him. As you can imagine, right? If you're, you have something important coming up, right? You are increasingly, as the days go by, you're getting closer. You are approaching it with more and more seriousness of gravity. It consumes you. This is the heartbeat of Jesus right here. And yet, amid all of the intensity, amid all of his focus, he hears the cries of blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road. And he, does, and he gets sidetracked. He's willing to. He takes the time to stop. He takes the time to reply or to, to respond to him as he's crying out there. But that's not the case with the crowds. The crowds who are going along with Jesus, they hear the cries of Bartimaeus and they cr- attempt to silence him. Shh, shh, come on, be quiet. We got stuff to do here. Now, why would they do that? They've seen so much. Why would the crowd be doing this? Well, maybe here's a few reasons. Maybe they've been hardened to seeing yet another beggar on the side of the road. How many beggars had they seen along the way? Along their way from from Galilee in the north down down on their way to Jericho, soon to get to Jerusalem. How many beggars had they seen along the road? This is just yet another one, right? Or perhaps they were concerned with Jesus' time. Wasn't this, if Jesus was going to, or if, if Jesus was going to turn aside and help this man, wouldn't this delay his entrance? Wouldn't this now delay the expectations of establishing his kingdom, which is what they thought was going to be happening in Jerusalem? But see, with either reason here, these people were dictating Jesus' priorities rather than letting him do as he would. They were making big assumptions about him. Oh, he's too busy. Bartimaeus was too insignificant. This would pull him away from more significant and more important matters. But when, what they're doing here in all this is they're putting Jesus in a box of their own making. They're conforming him to their own desires, to their own expectations, conforming him to their own standards rather than vice versa, rather than letting Jesus do all the, all the revealing of who he is. And the thing is, when you try to put Jesus in a box of your own making, you're going to find that he doesn't quite fit. That the flaps don't all fold down very nicely or neatly, if you can even get them folded in at all. In fact, Jesus, you're going to see, doesn't even fit well into the, the various dimensions and corners and sizes. And if you try to put those flaps down all the way, he's just going to blow out your box. See, Jesus demonstrates the opposite from their their ideas. He works according to his own priorities. If If he is who he says he is, if he is who he demonstrates himself to be, he can't and he will not be conformed. He pulls himself aside from the the crowd and he gives this man his time. Even though he's going to be crucified and redeem his people and fulfill his mission, he's also, though, going to not just take it, make it in these big cosmic abstract ideas, but he's going, to be, he's going to apply his work, give his redemption to individuals just like Bartimaeus there. See, Jesus isn't too busy for people. We sometimes overlook individuals in favor of the overall mission that we get so caught up sometimes in the big picture, that we forget about the individuals who are all around us. In fact, that the mission involves individuals uh, who who are redeemed, who are brought into the redemption and the renewal of all things. Jesus came to save sinners, and we, we say that, and we work for that, but yet we sometimes forget that they're all around us. 
that people are all around us who need him. And sometimes busyness here, this bit, bit busyness like we have the, these, these, uh, the, the crowds thinking that Jesus is too busy for this man, sometimes busyness can be this subtle lie that we follow after. In fact, there's an idol that a lot of us have. There's a lot, an idol that I would say most of us probably even have with us right now. Right here. The schedule on our phones. Right? The calendar on our phones, right? Because we think that a busy schedule runs us, right? A busy schedule rules over us. Sometimes having a busy schedule, a busy calendar, one that's full, is a marker of our significance. I must really be something if I'm a busy person. And perhaps then we can even use that as an excuse to overlook people in those individual moments. We are committed, so we are so committed to the cause that we forget that it involves people and time. Individual times where we give our, our, those, those moments to people. But see, Jesus, though the Son of God, had all the time in the world, though, for Bartimaeus. Not only because he's the Lord of time, not only because he's a sovereign of, of, over time, he had all the time in the world there, but also because he had all the time for him because he reveals the heart of God for the needy and the lowly who cry to him. He will not just simply pass by uncaring, but he will devote his time to them. And there's something, though, in this whole account that's easily overlooked. Because of all the people that we've encountered in Mark here, and all the people who we've seen meeting Jesus and those who have been healed, how many of their names do we know? I mean, other than the disciples, how many of the names that do we have here of the people who have been healed? None. Other than there's, there's Jairus, but, uh, but he, was, uh, he wasn't healed. His daughter was healed, was raised from the dead. And that was simply to, to, to illustrate that of who he was, that he was a, a ranking official there. But here is the first time and the only time that we have someone healed where we know their name, Bartimaeus. He wasn't just a blind man. He's a man with a name here. That's so important, right? Because what do names do? What do names confer? A name pulls someone from the abstract, that they are no longer just an anonymous person, but they are someone that you know something about. All right, so I go to the coffee shop downtown pretty frequently. And, and when the, bur- the, the, the barista there behind the counter, who oftentimes makes my Americanos, when she finally told me her name, oh, hi. I'm like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. No longer was she just the barista who makes my Americanos when I go in. She has a name. I know something about her. There's a relationality that happens. And then I go down and I sit down at, 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 at my table there. And there's someone who's next to me who's a little louder than I would prefer at that time. And it might annoy me a little bit. But you know what? That person who I have to remember, they have a name, right? And it's hard to write someone off when you know their name. And like being an image bearer, a name confers dignity. It confers personhood. It pulls someone from just abstract now and into the relational realm. There's a recognition that they are so much more than those limited dimensions that you can see. There's so much more than the person who pulls my coffee. There's someone so much more than that might be a little louder than I would normally like that's sitting next to me. There's someone, the, the, the neighbor that you have that you don't quite know, you don't know their name, but they're a little odd. There's so much more than just those oddities. The person that you see driving a vehicle that has a bumper sticker that you don't agree with. That person is more than just that bumper sticker. They have a name. 
the homeless person that you see sitting on, this, on the street, they have a name. See, there is a recognition there of when you know that, that they have a name. When you consider, even though you don't know their name, when you consider the fact that they have a name, there's so much more to them. There's a recognition that they are not just an image bearer, but there is a, the name that means that they have, they have uh, dignity and personhood. They're more than an object. They can be known. Bartimaeus has a name. He's more than his blindness. And Jesus regards him as someone who has more than just a name. He's not merely a blind man. That's not all of who he was. He had dignity and Jesus treats him thus. The second, what do we see here is is not just about about the the Jesus um, that he saw here, but also Bartimaeus' faith that we want to see. It's how he saw. He saw Jesus' willingness, but how did he see Jesus here? And it's his faith. The irony here is that blind Bartimaeus is able to see actually more clearly than some of the others, especially the religious people. Because there he's seeing Jesus with faith and understanding. He's seeing him for who he really is. Now it's said that, that someone with vision impairment will compensate then with having more attuned hearing. And in a way, that's how Bartimaeus is able to perceive Jesus better. And for one thing, he must have heard the news, and he has a pretty good understanding of who he must be. But his physical eyesight might be gone, but his eyes of faith, though, see much more clearly because he calls him son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, it's a royal title, hearkening back again to David, the great king of Israel. All right, son of David, you are a son of the great king of Israel. Thus, he is saying that he belongs as as rightful king and he's God's chosen one. He's the Messiah, the promised one upon whom all of their hopes and all of their dreams were pinned He recognizes something about Jesus that the others didn't pick up. He's able to see his glory in a matter of speaking. He's perceiving in some way that this son of David here is God's means of dispensing blessing and restoration. He may not have been able to see with his eyes, but the eyes of his heart were burning clearly. He he sees Jesus for who he is, and he must get to him. And so he cries out relentlessly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tries to silence him over and over, but he's not going to accept that. He just cries out more and more. He's a helpless man. He has nothing, and he has no means of attaining much of anything. There's nothing more than he can do as sit there and cry out in desperation. And that's what needy, helpless people do, isn't it? Is your cry to Jesus as relentless and desperate as Bartimaeus's? If you recognize your own helplessness, then I'm going to say, yes, it will be. Our cry doesn't only happen in the moment that we first believe, but that cry continues throughout our whole lives. It is the essence of, of repentance. It's the essence of prayer. It's crying out for mercy. It's the essence of ongoing trust, of our desperation. You see, there's no shame in looking at ourselves in this way as desperate. Actually, it's freeing when we see that. Because we can just put down the facade of, of, who we, and of, of who we think we are and just say, this is who I am. I'm desperate. All right, when we see ourselves in that way, we're actually seeing ourselves rightly. 
And it's good because the gospel says, the gospel message of the Bible says that Jesus came for the weak. Jesus came for the lowly. He came for the wounded. He came for the blind. He came for the desperate. Desperate people cry out in their desperation. And sometimes with deep sobs and these heaves of an ugly cry. And sometimes just simple cries of help. But no matter what it is, the root is still the same. Lord, have mercy. And third, that's what, that's what Bartimaeus saw. He saw the son of David's mercy. He saw Jesus as merciful. Jesus isn't turned off by, by Bartimaeus' ruckus. He calls him and he brought, come here, call him here. And this fickle crowd who's first trying to, to, to silence him, hey, take heart, come on, he wants to see you. And he jumps up and he throws aside the only possession he has, which is his dirty, tattered old cloak. He comes to son of David, right? He comes to son of David, a royal title, seeking for the king to be merciful. And Jesus shows him what sort of king he is, that he's a merciful king, that he's a benevolent king, that he's a king who doesn't see Bartimaeus as an impediment to his mission because people like him are those whom he came to rescue. He listens and cares about his subjects, about his constituents. Even as Bartimaeus' cries are shushed by the crowds, Jesus listens. He takes note and listens to the cry of the least, even when it is drowned out in the chaos. No cry is too weak. No cry is too minimal. No cry is too beneath him. None is too silent. In fact, Jesus doesn't need to be convinced by your cries either. He hears you with willingness. He wants to hear you cry out. I mean, just, continue, just think about that in the realm of prayer, first of all. You don't need to convince him or coerce him to hear your prayers. He wants to hear them. Because Jesus, the Son of God, reflects God the Father. He's always heard his people. When, when his people Israel were in bondage to, to, to Egypt, when they were slaves oppressed in a foreign land, it says that they cried out to the Lord. And then, and then Exodus 2.25 says that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh. He hears the desperate cries of his people. No cry is too desperate. No situation is too dire for the sovereign Lord of renewal to hear and to, take, and to, to, to be willing to take pity on But again, there's something else when he calls him son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Again, a king in the likeness of David. And David was a great warrior. He was a a great king who conquered enemies and lands. He built a kingdom. He consolidated power. But that's not all. David was also a man who had a shepherd's heart. He gathered the unlikely. He gathered and brought together the needy and the desperate. And maybe those sensibilities were learned because of his upbringing that he had as a shepherd. In 1 Samuel 22, uh, the first couple of verses there, after David was, was uh, anointed king of Israel, and then he's on the run from Saul and he goes to, he's hiding out with caves and he's got his 400 men with him. But he's drawing all, the pe- all these people from, from, from the, the, the surrounding territories coming to him. Those who were in distress, it says. Those who were in debt. Those who were bitter in soul. These were the people who gathered to him. He brought them together under his protection and care. That's what the king did. That's what King David did. Or we even heard this morning in our Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel 9 about the kindness that he showed to Mephibosheth, 
a man who you would have think would have been unworthy of it. A man who, his name actually means man of shame. A man who was lame in his feet. But, or, but David shows Mephibosheth mercy and kindness. He brings this lame man into his house. He cares for him. He seats him at his table. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is a king in the same way like David, except even better. He gathers in the distressed. He gathers in the poor. He gathers in the lame. Also, we see here him gathering in the blind. And he welcomes them into his kingdom. He seats them at his table. He says, you're welcome here. You don't need to worry about anything. The poorest in spirit have a place in the kingdom. Jesus isn't just sympathetic. He doesn't just listen to us. But he restores. He acts. That's why Jesus responded when Bartimaeus cried out for mercy. It's why Jesus responds to us also when we cry out for mercy. This is what Bartimaeus saw. This was his vision. I want to see fourth point then. Bartimaeus' vision here. What he saw then. It's his new understanding in what, Jesus, in what seeing Jesus brought. It's what he did then. He sees. He sees in a new way. As Jesus calls him out of darkness into light. We could say that in two, two ways. One, obviously, is the darkness of his eyes. And, and now the light streaming into his new, newly restored vision. We have him called out of darkness there into light. But also, second is the darkness of his understanding. The eyes of his heart, his outlook on life that has been shrouded and obscured by spiritual darkness. He's called out of that and into the glorious light of Jesus now. His eyes were opened in seeing life illumined by Jesus. In a way, like walking through a dark forest at night during a new moon. It's, it's pitch black. There's darkness all around. There's fear. You're stumbling all over roots and rocks. Uh, you're being scratched by trees. But then, though, at sunrise... The sun comes up and the light dispels the darkness and you get new beauty and perspective. The forest isn't something to be feared anymore. The forest is something that's beautiful. The sky is illumined. It radiates blue that's uh, behind the golden rays that are, that are reflecting off of the trees in the morning. Those trees are no longer objects of danger or something to watch out for, but of beauty and awe. You see the vistas, you see the, the valleys, the views, they're all revealed because of the sunrise. Because the light shines forth. And Jesus opened Bartimaeus' eyes to see life, not in darkness anymore, but life now in the light of the Son of God. The desperate fear that he may have had being replaced by beauty. No longer having to grope around in the shadows, but knowing that Jesus is a light that shines. He's a light that shines in our hearts, that he illumines our eyes, he restores our vision so that we can now interpret life as he intended. Not to live in fear, but to live in awe and hope at God, with God's glory. The illumination of hope where death and where despair and where shadows obscured our joy. We have re reality that's now interpreted, not by groping around in the dark, but reality that's interpreted and seen through the light of communion with the triune God. 
That's a life of gratitude, of seeing all of his works as being wonders of his glory, of being brought into awe and wonder and thankfulness when we see those things. Of being reminded that even in times of difficulty that the Lord Jesus Christ is redeeming all things for his glory. And that redemption lurks around every corner. There's a divine hope that has entered into this world, of the natural world of suffering and death. And we'll make all things new. The beauty which flooded Bartimaeus' eyes, though, wasn't only the natural world. It was the beauty of Jesus before him. And that made all the difference. Overcome with his new sight here, overcome with seeing Jesus, and he does the only thing that you could expect to do. They follow after him. That's what disciples do. They follow. What else is there to do, right? What more reasonable act could he do? If he is the source of life and understanding, where else is there for us to go? Nowhere. And Bartimaeus followed him along the way, it says. He recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And the assumption is that he followed him that next day then going to Jerusalem. Where he would see then his triumphal entry, seated on a, don- on a donkey with the crowds waving palm branches and shouting out, Hosea, for the new king has come. And perhaps then also, he would even see with his eyes his trial and crucifixion just a week later. Again, with the very eyes that the Christ who was hanging naked on the cross gave to him. Where he would see with his eyes the mercy of the Son of God, or the Son of David in its full sense. The mercy of the King who would give himself up for his people to rescue them from sin. That's the only way of making sense of the crucified Jesus is it's to look through the new vision that he gives. To not see it as an offense. To not see it as a mere tragedy, but as the means of hope. And perhaps Bartimaeus then maybe even saw Jesus after the resurrection. I don't know. But either way, it doesn't really matter because he beheld Jesus in his hope. He didn't need to see with his eyes when he already saw him in faith. As we come to the table... We don't see Jesus in the flesh right now. We don't see him raised for us. We don't see him ascended. But we do see signs of him. We see signs of him in the bread and the cup. And Jesus has given them to us to refocus our vision and our sight upon him. To refocus our faith on him and and reminding us that we will see him someday. As we'll be seated around the table, his eternal table in glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes. That you would have mercy on us, Lord, and open our eyes to see Jesus more. And to not let our gaze be overcome by anything more that we might think in that moment is more beautiful. Nothing is more beautiful than Jesus. And so, pull away the blinders. Pull away all of the, the things that may obscure our vision. And allow us to see him, to truly see him, and to love him more than we did before. Allow us to follow after him with glad hearts, with our eyes firmly focused upon him. Prepare us as we come to the Lord's table here, which he sets out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.